And so then I would get into this guilty shame cycle. I would do something and then feel guilty about it. I would, I would do something and then I would feel guilty about it. And then I would use. And then I'd feel shame about using. And then I would do it all over again. Welcome to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy, where education meets recovery. Archway is a sober high school in the sunny heart of Houston, Texas. We meet the individual educational needs of teens recovering from substance use disorder with care, compassion, respect, and rigor. Archway is the largest recovery high school in the nation, and we are here to remind you that you may not be able to see it now, but something different is possible. This is A Way Through. Hi, this is Jamie Edwards, and I'm your host today for A Way Through. In today's episode, we will be discussing teen substance use and its impact on the family system. We're joined today by Chris Crawford with LifeSpring Behavioral. He's a man in long-term recovery. He's a therapist and has his own personal experiences with substance use and its impact on the family. So we're very excited to have him today. If you haven't listened to previous episodes of A Way Through, I invite you to start now. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram at Archway Academy and on Facebook at Archway Academy HTX. Our message on A Way Through is to help students and worried families in the throes of teenage substance use by showing them that there are viable options for restoring their child's physical, mental, emotional, and academic health. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Excited to have you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Can you tell us, we'll jump into kind of your personal experiences, but first I want you to talk about professionally, the work that uh, you do at LifeSpring and kind of what brought you to this. We always like to hear our guests talk about what it is that brought them into what it is that they're doing now. Sure. So first, what brought me into the field of social work, so I'm a clinical social worker. So I think I kind of always say this is that I think I was born to be a social worker. I just think that was my, that was my calling from the very beginning. I think I struggled with trying to find my voice in that and and understanding really what a social worker was or kind of understanding what a young person was that had care and compassion for other people. So I kind of struggled with that, dealing a little bit with my own circumstances of, of family dynamics and the interaction with my family. And so I started using substances at a pretty young age, around 13. So I started, you know, my my initial drug of choice. I don't usually like to say this just because, it, it, it you know, people will probably start exploring it because it's not a common uh, drug of choice. So I, I tend not to even say it just for the safety of other people. And, but then I started probably around 14, really um, developed into uh, heavy drinking. And so alcohol was my drug of choice. I did a lot of other things, but alcohol was really my drug of choice. That was kind of my go-to. That was easy accessible to me. So that was kind of my path and, and how I got to the, the social work field is I got sober when I was, or I attempted to get sober when I was 22 years old. I went into my first treatment center at 22. I stayed there for just you know, back then it was only 30 days of inpatient treatment. And then they kind of shipped you out to AA and said, you know, kind of this is how you do it. 90 days and 90 meet, or 90 meetings and 90 days. That was just kind of the, the treatment modality back then. Two years later, they they developed something. Well, I don't know if they developed it, but it was called uh, halfway. They used to call them halfway houses. So now they're called sober living, which is much more palatable for, for a young person getting in, in, into recovery is, hey, I'm going to go to sober living. Uh, as opposed to a halfway house. But so essentially what I did was I went into four different treatment centers in a span of two years. And finally at 24, I I went into my last treatment, went there, and then they offered me an opportunity to go to a secondary treatment center. That's what they called it. So they had primary and then they had secondary. So I went into, which, which was essentially just another treatment center, just in a different location. And so it was in Louisiana. It was eight miles from anything. It was in the swamps of Louisiana, cane fields. I ended up staying there for a very long time. And ultimately, that's that's where I got sober. And then I went back to school. My undergrad is in education. 
because I was kind of thinking whether I not not I wanted to be a coach, uh, you know, a teacher, something like that. And long story short, I had completed that degree and then went straight in to get my master's in social work. And so that's kind of how I got into this field. And I, I worked from I started initially working at a nonprofit, um, which is called Options for Independence, and this is in Louisiana. And I work with people with severe mental illness. So I started out as a job coach, which is not as, as glamorous as it may sound. It was a great job. I loved it. It was, it was, it was my, you know, I was happy. It was pretty stressful, but I was very happy doing that. Um, I wasn't working per se with addiction. I would do that part-time at the, the treatment center that I went to. I started working at, to get my clinical hours. I would work at, over there, do lead groups and things like that and sponsoring guys and things of that nature. But I started out as a tech there. So I was just a tech. I got paid $3.25 an hour. Oh, big money. Yes, big money. But it was, it was the reward was much better. So I did that and I worked as a job coach as well. So I worked with people with severe mental illness. I would help them get a job. At like say Burger King, Burger King would train me how to do the job, and then I would train my person how to actually do the job. And it was just, it was kind of reducing their resources, Burger King's resources. So they would, they were essentially hiring me and my client, and so they would train me how to do the job. So I would learn how to read the screen. I would, you know, have to do all the things that a, an employee at Burger King or McDonald's or Walmart or any of those other locations that we got people jobs. So I would do that. That was very rewarding. One, they, you know, the the clients are now starting to work. And, you know, these are people that were deemed unemployable at one point. And so we were able to help them get the job and maintain the job. You know, some of them maintained longer than others, but it was a very rewarding job. So I started doing that. And that's when, like, I really started feeling the sense of social work. And this is really what I want to do. I want to make a change in, in the world. I want to be a change agent. I want to be the, you know, a conduit between, you know, somebody doing something really good and an organization that wants some really good work. So I did that. And as I kind of grew in that field, I, I started and then I became a mental health specialist. So it's no more when well, it was it was less about getting a job and more about teaching life skills. And so they were, you know, they were like a, um, a system approach of how we're going to do this. So it would be psychosocial skills. It would be uh, medication management. It would just be general life skills on how to how to go to a restaurant, how to buy your own food, how to grocery shop. We did a lot of exposure therapy. So I would, I would, you know, there was one particular person that I worked with. It took about nine months for him to get all the way through Walmart to go grocery shopping. So it was day after day after day after day. We would just do very small steps. It was very rewarding though, because at the end of it, you got to see it's like this person can go out and do these things on their own. So that was a very rewarding job. Obviously, things kind of changed a little bit. And working for a nonprofit, I was able to do all the things that you're really not supposed to do in terms of clinical work and things like that, you know, because they don't have, they have less resources. So I was able to, I learned so much doing those two, those two particular jobs. And then, so then I started working for the state of Louisiana and I started working with adolescent at-risk youth. And so I was working in a program where they were court mandated. So they would get in trouble for something, whether it's truancy or something, something that is not necessarily um, a, a criminal act. However, they would get sent to detention and from detention, they, you know, they would test positive for marijuana and then, then they would ultimately say, yes, I'll go see Mr. Chris. And so they would sit, come to me for, you know, 12 sessions, evidence-based program. It was CBT, but back then it was also called MET. And then we had cannabis therapy, which is CYT. But most of the individuals that I was seeing were, they were beyond marijuana use. This was, they were using cocaine, using opiates. And opiates really wasn't that big at that time. They were around, but it wasn't as prominent as it is now. So I did that for, yes, I think I worked for the state of Louisiana, maybe five to seven years. And then we moved to Texas. And when I moved to Texas, I started working for Memorial Hermit Prevention and Recovery Center. And so I was there for 10, 11 years. And then I came into private practice after. Sorry, I know that's a, a long-winded to your question, but I thought I'd give some, some kind of idea of what I did. Throughout yeah, background and context. That's great. And of course, we at Archway have an affinity for the park because that's where we provide uh, education for the adolescents that are there in y'all's care and treatment. And I know that we currently have a staff member who worked with you at the park 
and who credits you with the reason she credits you with being the reason why she has chosen to become a licensed clinical social worker. Haley. All right. Yes, I remember Haley. I remember her coming into my office and saying, hey, what do you, you know, what should I do? I think she, at that point, she was an LCBCI and she was kind of navigating that path. And I, I really encouraged her to do the social work route. And, and it's nothing to, against LBCs. They're, I mean, they're great as well, I think. But when you go into to school and you're really kind of unfamiliar with what you really want to do, social work just gives you a much broader, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can do if you want to teach. And I'm sure LBCs can teach as well. I'm just, you know, obviously I'm a clinical social worker, so I'm, I'm going to push for social work. Yeah. And it ended itself for me. And, and just talking to her, she sounded like that's kind of route she wanted to go. So I just encouraged her to do it. Um, she's very thankful for that. And she is going to be an amazing clinical social worker. We we love Haley. So tell me a little bit about Life Springs, please, and what it is that you guys do there. Okay, so we are a Christian-based program. Well, I am the only one that works in the addiction field as a therapist, so I'm the only one that sees any addiction here. Um, we do have a, an addictionologist, her name's Dr. Uh, Rutland, so she, see, she works with addiction as well, but the majority we have in here are anywhere from an MD to nurse practitioners, and then we have a PA, and so they're all the prescribing medications, and so any type of mental health-related issues. We have several other therapists in here that are licensed LPC. I'm the only social worker here, so there's everybody else is an LPC, um, and then we have a few LPCAs, but they pr- primarily work with mental health-related issues. Um, I'm kind of, you know, again, I'm a social worker, so uh, I will see couples, I will see family. I really like working with families, and I like working with teens, but I, my wheelhouse is substance abuse. That's whatever they want. You know, I have a passion for that. I've kind of moved recently into a passion with working with teens. That's where really where I feel and I, I, I just see a, a greater need, the teen and the family. And that's where I want to be very specific is that we can drop little Johnny off at the at the front and he can come up here and he can sit with me for 45 minutes and I can help him. I can help him navigate through his, you know, his struggles. However, if I don't have that family component involved in it, it, it it's, just, it's just an uphill battle. And so I really want to work with the families and the team. It needs to be both, and they both need to be in here doing the work. Right. So definitely at Archway, we are big fans of that. We do believe that, and we say this on just about every podcast, we do believe that it's a family systems issue. And so uh, not only do we want our teams to get help, but we want our families to get the support that they need and deserve. Our audience knows that I'm I'm the parent of uh, an adult child who has struggled, and uh, they've heard me talk about you know my experiences and my thoughts behind where the industry has been and where it's moving, and how glad I am to see that the shift seems to be not quickly but slowly being made away from. The focus always being on our loved one and and trying to get us to understand what they're going through and their challenges and their struggles, which is definitely important. It's equally, so it's a both and, and it's equally important that that we be taught about our difficulties and our struggles and that our loved one is also taught about our difficulties and struggles so that as a system, we can begin to heal together. And, you know, there are some families who feel like that the problem rests with their loved one, whether it's their teen or their spouse or a sibling or a parent. It's like, well, that's not my problem. I'm not the one who uh, consumes copious amounts of substances. I'm not the one who does X, Y, and Z. So, and I did in the beginning, um, I thought I could just send my daughter away and they would fix her and then everything would be okay. You know, um, little did I know, because it's been almost 15 years now, that that was not going to be the solution. She is not a one and done. <laughs> um, what was I? Yeah, and most aren't, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think even just right there, that's a key point that I really want our parents and our listeners to know It's not failure if it doesn't take root the first time. 
in our last episode, I was talking with uh, Aaron from Care On Treatments. You know, we talked about the importance, and I know you can probably personally share on this, all along your journey from when you first started working to get sober until the time that you finally did, any seed that is planted has the opportunity to eventually take root and grow and then lead to continuous sobriety or some form of recovery that makes that person be able to have a life and relationships and be productive in their life and in the community and in their family. So can you speak to that a little bit in your own personal experiences? Like I know you said you started around 15 and then you were 22 before it finally took hold. Yeah. So, I mean, there were all kinds of things that that kind of transpired in that, that in that brief time, I had coaches that were telling me, you know, hey, you need to you need to separate yourself, you know, and and sometimes they would think that you know, okay, it was my peer group that I was hanging around with. I was usually the, the activist and all this. I was the precipitator of everything, and I wanted, you know, I was dealing with a lot of emotional stuff. My parents divorced when I was young. Not to, that I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying that was a that was a the situation that happened, and I didn't handle it well. I didn't cope well. Uh, I don't think they did either. And so it was just a mixed bag of just messiness that that just didn't, didn't go well. We made it through. However, I was, I was probably suffering the most in that process. Not to say that anybody didn't suffer. It's just, I think I was, I was coping the worst in, in terms of I was using substances to help deal with what was going on with me. And everything that I had inside of me was an internal conflict. That's where I start in, in my sessions and in my, maybe not the initial session. I'm usually fact-finding in the initial session, trying to understand the dynamics in the family. But ultimately, I get to this internal conflict and I help the client understand, client and the family to understand that there's this internal conflict. We have to identify what that internal conflict is. So I did that for myself is to understand what that internal conflict was. I would have where I heard one thing, uh, something was instilled in me at a very young age. You know, these are all the positive things that, you know, be nice, care for others, hard work pays off. However, or my situations in life didn't match up. They weren't aligned. And so, and I didn't process that, that internal conflict that I was having. I, I, maybe I worked really, really hard and it didn't pay off for me or, you know, somebody, you know, my mom or my dad would say, be honest you know, be truthful, be respectful, be all those things. And then somebody was dishonest with me. I didn't process like, Hey, how do I match? How do I, how do these two things align? I would internalize that stuff and then say that everybody is bad or everybody is dishonest or people are going to hurt me. You know, once I experienced that hurt, I didn't know what to do with that hurt. And so I didn't process it for a long time. It was sports that kept me, kept me in, in, in somewhat containment. However, once my addiction just started becoming more and more progressive, all the, the sports were no longer my my outlet, and so I, I started developing a new coping mechanism, which which I'm predisposed to alcoholism. It's just it's in my family system, which is the another part that I kind of go through is is I'm really big as a social worker. I'm really big on doing genograms and and understand. Oh, sorry, genograms, um, which is just a, you know for layman terms, it's just a family tree, and it's mapping out your family history three generate typically three generations back. And, you know, most people probably hear this before. They, they may say something to the effect like, you know, hey, you're just like your grandfather. Or, hey, you need to be careful. Your grandfather was an alcoholic. But that's all they say. They don't really look at. And so for me as a clinical social worker, I'm looking at relationship patterns. I, I want to see the relationship pattern. So, yes, there's a there's a biological part to this, but there's also a relationship pattern. And so navigating through those systems, because what happens is just like my dad and my mom. They have their history and they merge these two histories. And if those things are unresolved within their family history, more than likely it's going to come down to me. And so I wanted to, you know, once I started becoming more and more educated on this and I said, I want to stop that family cycle. And so before I got married, I didn't tell my wife that I was doing a genogram on her, but I was doing a genogram on her. So I was mapping out her history to make sure that when we merged, I knew my history, but obviously I'm not privy to her history other than you know, through seeing that. And so just understanding that, you know, I'm going to merge this system and then we're going to have kids potentially. I mean, we do have kids, but potentially we're going to have kids and they're going to be the next generation. 
And so I really want them to be educated on what our family history looks like. And I do that with my kids. My kids both know they're 13 and 16. They both know they both know that I'm in recovery. Initially, I would start with, you know, hey, I just have an allergy. You know, I, I didn't give them all the, the nitty gritty of it, but I would tell them, you know, I used to just tell them, you know, hey, I made a lot of poor choices. You know, you're making way better, de- better decisions than I made at your age. So I just helping them understand that. And as they got older, I would tell them more about the allergy, more about alcoholism, more about drug addiction and helping them to understand, hey, it's it's there. It's we have a history of it. So you got to be really mindful. You got to be aware. And then, you know, obviously I educate them on vaping. I educate them on not to say that they're not going to do these things, but the way I, I, you know, I just try to educate them the best that I can. And then, you know, obviously I, I want them to understand our history. And that's where we're kind of talking is I just want them to understand the history, my history, their history. Yeah. So two things that I hear you saying there that I think going back to the family and the parents and and working both sides of the aisle with our loved one and with us, equal attention, equal time, um, equal compassion, equal opportunity to be able to see the roles that we play in our family systems is number one, that there are situations and circumstances that can lead to our child struggling and developing high-risk behavior, substance use disorder, specifically in this conversation, that have absolutely nothing to do with our parenting. Because as a parent, not every time, but most times, we develop this overwhelming sense of what did I do wrong? How did I do it wrong? How did I fail my child? I've done X, Y, and Z to give my child a, a life or opportunities. And yet my and yet my child is making these choices. And we've talked about this again multiple times on the show that when parents are educated and when parents are given time and attention we can be taught and we can understand that oftentimes our kids and the choices that they're making, it is their way to cope. It is not that because all moms and dads are going to leave dents and bruises on their kids. Absolutely. You just can't get through parenting or childhood, like you mentioned, without parents leaving dents and dings on their kids. It's just how it goes. It's the human experience. But When I began to understand my daughter's use was her solution, because all I viewed it as was a problem. And like you said, getting down into those genograms or genograms, I'm saying it wrong, (laughs) you can correct me. And looking at more than just the use is when you really start to be able to do the good, deep work in the family system. Agreed or not? Yeah. So one thing I wanted to say is that, you, so you said it was her solution, her temporary, uh, only a temporary solution. Yes. Yes. To a painful situation. Yes. So it's really getting into the, the weeds of what is that situation. Not not to say about your daughter, but yeah, I'm just saying in general, is that it's only a temporary, that's, that's the part of addiction that's it's only a temporary solution to a permanent problem or perceived to a permanent problem. Absolutely. And trying to help them navigate through that. One thing that I, I often tell parents, if I'm working with a parent, and I do it with, you know, and with even with my own boys, is hey, let's have a discussion. Let's, and I use the word let's. So it's not like I want to talk to you about this. It's let's have a discussion. Let's talk about this. Can you tell me more? And in, 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 in the hopes that they can, they would, they, they will feel some level of acceptance and, and openness that I'm here to listen. Well, that was the second point that you made is that how important it is for parents, spouses, siblings, whoever it is that's in relationship with the one that's struggling to be able, like part of helping parents and loved ones is, is teaching us how to engage our loved one without bringing all of our stuff to the conversation so that you know, there were times when absolutely my daughter was just trying to be honest, or she was just trying to share her experience. And it was just too much. And, and I think that's, that's legitimate in the beginning. 
And I'm so thankful that I have been able to get to a place where I still don't want to hear everything all the time, nor should I. Being able as a family to have coping skills as a family, to be able to have some really tough conversations, some really honest conversations and conversations where I don't have my finger in her face, where I'm not making her responsible for for my feelings and emotions, where I'm not holding her hostage. Um, I know as family members, we feel like hostages and that our loved ones are terrorists with some of the behavior that they're engaging in and what they're doing and and the marks that it's leading on us. And so I'm just super grateful. Like when we first talked and I learned that you were doing family stuff, I was like, oh, we have to have him on the podcast because we we really want to educate our families and let them know that there is help and there's support. One thing, yeah, there was one thing that you said that which I thought was important because it's also it's the dichotomy also in that in the also the internal conflict, which is the is two things dichotomy is just two things happening at the same time. So it's two two polar opposite things. And so you suggested that in your relationship, I think you said with in your relationship with your daughters where the or the loved one that's using the parents are feeling hostage to the person that's using, which is also what happens to the person that is using in the relationship. However, it happened long before use, where they felt like they were a hostage within this family system. I'm not saying not in the literal literal term of hostage, it's just like they didn't have a voice or they couldn't verbalize themselves the way that, you know, because they said, you know, well, what's wrong with you? You know, when a parent may say that sometimes it's, and I, I, I have been guilty of it myself. It's like, what's going on? What's wrong? And maybe nothing's wrong. And, but what I told, what I told them or what they, the message that they heard was something is wrong is that when I emote like this and I have some level of emotion or I verbalize something, then something has to be wrong with me, which is not, you know, and I think that just sends a, a mixed message to them, which, which in turn becomes the internal conflict for them. They don't know how to process that, and, but they find this this temporary solution. Which for me, the temporary solution was a long term problem because it, it because it's progressive, and I have a predisposition to alcoholism. And so all those things combined, I was just like a perfect storm. I had life circumstances. I had an internal conflict, and then I found a substance that relieved that internal conflict temporarily, and then it just got became progressive, and then I couldn't stop. And I literally could not stop. So I think that what you just said, Chris, bears repeating because I think that that those three things are at the core of why we say substance use is a family systems issue because the child has big T, small T trauma, whatever it is. And it certainly does not mean that it was brought on by anything that the parent did or didn't do. It could be, but it doesn't mean that it is. And then they develop a a internal conflict. And then their short-term solution to that is escapism through drugs and alcohol or some other type of high-risk behavior. So boom, boom, boom. And then there's no way that a whole that a family's dynamics cannot be very dysregulated when that's going on. I know one thing that was very clear in our home is everything became about my daughter, about her substance use, about how to manage it, about what to do, what not to do. Am I going to cause her to relapse? Am I causing her to use more? How is it impacting my marriage? Um, It impacted the way I showed up at work. It impacted relationships, friendships. It impacted other family members. I mean, it's not just within the nuclear family unit. Like it spreads out and has a lot of impact. So can you talk about that? The one thing I want to kind of go back to is that you said, and I'm trying to recall exactly how you said it. But one thing I wanted to mention is is before the substance came, before we we actively or we we started exploring the substances, there were other things that we were escaping through. We were utilizing whether it's school, whether it's grades, sports. We had these other outlets, but for whatever the reason, those outlets 
they just came became smaller and smaller and smaller and the feel good wasn't there or the, the accolades or the recognition was not there as it once was so that that their coping mechanism was not not nearly as and it was hard to do those things so you know playing sports is very difficult uh, making good grades is very difficult but drinking or using that's a little bit easier you know yes you know there's some nuances that happen when you have to hide it and do all those things but it's a pretty immediate release and it's you know it's it's a it's a very temporary solution but it feels like it's a long-term solution all we're looking for is that feel good the other stuff took a lot of work for us to, to make that feel good continue and so and i, I just think over time we, we just kind of get beat down or at least i got beat down with with trying to maintain something where substances became just that much easier for me and I was despondent and I was resentful and I was hurt. I didn't know how to process that. So I know that's not the question, but it just made me think about me because I also wanted to notice that like whenever people get sober, their true authentic self starts coming out again. And all the things that you utilize that we tapped into, or at least that I tapped into as a young person, all came back. Once I stopped using, all those things came back. My creativity, all the things that used to excite me. And that were my pleasure center before they all came back. You know, I'm almost 50 years old and I'm like a little kid. I get excited about things that I really, you know, a 50 year old shouldn't be excited about. I mean, maybe not shouldn't be excited about, but I get excited about them. Yeah. And that's great news and certainly something that our parents need to hear. So hopefully when they're listening and that'll bring a smile to their face. That'll bring hope to their heart. And maybe they can just rewind that because it's really important to know that, you know, our loved one is oftentimes buried very deeply in in their disease. But there is the opportunity for a rebuild and, and restoration. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that. So um, I do want to say one thing, just when you were talking about this one thing, I'm sorry to interrupt, you were talking about bringing hope to the family. And so I was working with somebody just recently, as a matter of fact, yesterday, and, and this, this statistic was around whenever I was in treatment at at 22 years old, this, this was around. And so they would say something to the effect of, I want to say that 90%, like the way that they, they viewed it as, okay, if there was 12 people sitting in this group, there's three of y'all that are going to make it for one year. And after that one year, there's only going to be one of y'all. And I remember the first time I heard that and I was so mad. I was so angry. I was just like, well, why am I even here? If the statistics say that I'm not going to make it, you know, I remember, I just remember being very angry at that. And I was 22 at that time. And I heard it the next time I went to treatment, I heard it the next time I went to treatment. And the last time that I went to treatment, I said, okay, I've heard this so many times. Now, instead of getting mad about it, I'm going to figure out what do I need to be? What do I need to do? to be that one person that makes it. And I'm going to do everything. I'm going to go to any lengths. Believe me, I was flipping people off and being really upset. And I was angry the whole time I was doing what they were suggesting that I do, but I wanted to be that one. And today, only today, just for today, I am that one. And I want other people to know that there's hope in this recovery work. One thing that I didn't have a lot of was trust, trust the process. It was important for me to trust the process. And I remember them saying that to me a lot. You got to trust the process. And as painful as it was, I was trusting the process. Right. So true. Uh, Process is painful. You have the story from the side of the individual who struggles. And the story, my story, obviously, is as a family member and, and trusting that process is hard. I mean, it literally is an act of faith, right? Because faith is believing in what you cannot see. Sometimes we do not see (laughs) the the change or the progress that we want to see and the way that we want to see it uh, and the timeline that we want to see it. But just encouragement again, that it is possible, that it does happen every day. Thousands of people get and stay sober. Thousands with organizations like LifeSpring and the work that you guys are doing and so many others. I mean, Houston is rich and vibrant when it comes to recovery, especially adolescent recovery. We have something here in Houston that many, many, many other cities do not. And uh, we're very fortunate uh, at Archway to be part of this adolescent continuum of care and, you know, parents that are listening, professionals that are listening, there's so many ways to get your loved ones plugged in. 
uh, life spring and archway just being two of many. So we encourage you to do that. Mm. Uh, I want to ask you, what is the difference between therapy and recovery or are they the same thing? I do not consider them the same thing. So therapy, therapy is where we're, you know, you're, you're coming in, you're going to meet with me or another therapist, and we're going to resolve some of that internal conflict. We're going to, we're going to map out some of that family of origin stuff, issues for like a better word. We're going to map all those things out. And then we're going to start building strategies to help you guys communicate, set boundaries, navigate through this, you know, young recovery life, uh, manage expectations, manage cravings, manage triggers, all those things. That's what we would do in therapy. AA is or recovery support network, any any type of recovery meeting. That's something different. That's an outside entity that is is there for support. You're going to find maybe potentially find a sponsor, a mentor, somebody that's going to help you work these 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Pills Anonymous, whatever anonymous that you decide to go down, whether that's Celebrate Recovery, Regen, any of those things. You're going to do that separately where you come in to meet with me. We're going to start talking about, we're going to dive into some, some real healthy strategies, understanding the triggers. I do a lot of work on triggers, understanding triggers. And the trigger was just something, and I know I spoke to you about this before, is Gabor, I didn't always butcher his name, I'm sure, but Gabor Mate, Mate um, he does something on triggers. And I really liked it. When I heard it, I was like, God, that makes so much sense. But I, I expounded on it just a little bit more, and I'm sure he just didn't have the time to expound on it, but I'm sure his thoughts are, are very similar. The trigger is essentially useless without the ammunition. And what we have to find out is what is the ammunition, right? What is what is our internal messaging? Because that, that, that's that's where the explosion happens. There's a trigger, whether that trigger is, I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, your boss or, you know, one of your peers that, you know, confront you or say something negative to you. What's the internal message about that? And so that's the ammunition. And if we can address that ammunition and we don't have ammunition in our gun, I hate using those terms, but that's the best way to do it is, is, you know, I would draw a gun on my whiteboard and I'll explain all this to them. I say, I'll point to the trigger. The trigger could be mom. The trigger could be dad. It could be, you know, the teacher. It could be that. That's the thing that kind of ignites you, right? When you pull that trigger, if you don't have any ammunition, the gun's not going to go off. There's not going to be an explosion. So you got to address the ammunition, which is the internal message. In my opinion, it's the internal messaging which goes back to the internal conflict. What is that What is that message that I have, that I have built and not talked about? Because it may not actually even be valid. And how, do, yes. how, can, how can we reframe that? How can we change that message? How can we improve that message? How can that be a positive message as opposed to a negative message? Yes. So um, that is gold. And I just want to repeat what you said. So triggers are useless without ammunition. Oh my gosh, Chris, that is solid gold. So just really quick plug for uh, Gabor Mate, fabulous listeners, parents. If you have not read any of his work or watched any of his stuff, um, run, do not walk, pause this and go find him. He is incredible. If you want to read like a tomb of a book, it's huge. But it is really worth it. It's called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's fabulous, fabulous. It should be standard reading in schools. It's it's amazing. So I think we can also get audio books. Yes, yes, yes. So when you drive and you're commuting to Houston, you can listen to this book. I mean, that's essentially what I would do. I would just listen to all these. You know, I'm not a big fan of reading. However, Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of listening. And so I would just listen. And I watch YouTube clips on it. I mean, it's, he's just, he's a fabulous guy. He's so intelligent. And it he makes is. so much sense to me. He does. He does. So what you said, you, you kind of gave examples when it comes to the identified individual. And I'm sitting here as a loved one thinking, oh, I mean, the reason that's so gold. And I, I wrote it down. I guarantee it's going in my journal. And I will be writing about this because and and Chris, you know this, working with families, family members struggle so hard with their own internal messaging. And it can often be why we cannot set or stick to boundaries, why we engage our loved ones in ways that 
we, the internal message says that this is love, but it's not really love. It's, it's an attempt to manipulate and control so that we're, so that we can attempt to regulate and control ourselves. So over and over and over again, I, I can't speak. I'm, I'm not a spouse. I've never been the spouse of someone who struggled. I'm not a sibling. I'm not the child of my only connection to substance use addiction, alcoholism is as a parent. So, so you, you said something that I think is important. Maybe I could just, you know, say something on that is that yeah. about the trigger and the ammo, which would be the opposite for the person that is suffering. Right. So your trigger is if your daughter uses my, what is my ammunition? What is the internal message that comes across? She's the trigger uh-huh. because that triggers some level of emotion for you. Right. And oh, the internal, yeah. the internal message is, is that I've, I've been a bad parent. I neglected her. I wasn't there. I didn't hear, you know, and so the, you go through, that's where the explosion comes in. Absolutely. Like, then I go into fight or flight. I, I got to fix this. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to just hearing that and her use doesn't, that doesn't mean you did something wrong. Right. But our message says that it is. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that we talked about in our last podcast, again, with Aaron, is the role that shame plays, not just in the identified individual and the shame that they carry, but also in the just the shame that what has happened in our family, what has happened for me as a parent, what has happened? I'm not a good enough kid. So my mom or dad uses, or, you know, was I not a good enough sibling? Shame blankets everyone that's involved. And so I just think it's so important. Again, at the beginning of this, we talked about slowly some things are starting to change, but speak to that. I know we're coming to the end, but can can you just give us your viewpoint on the role of shame in the family system and for each one and how you try to address that in therapy? Well, so, yeah, so the, I, I always believe that there's a gain there. There's a shame guilt cycle. We, we have a pattern of behavior and then we feel guilty about that pattern of behavior and we really have some shame and then we try to compensate. So there's a whole plethora of defense mechanisms that we use. And I do give that assignment out as well. And there's a bunch of compensations. Just one of them. If I have a perceived weakness, then I would go to a strength that I have. And I try to use this one example. I always use it. And I remember this teacher from way back when, I probably shouldn't say her name, but I think it was first or second grade that you know we had to read aloud in class. But I'm just trying to get back to the guilt and shame cycle, but I just like to use analogies to help people relate a little bit more. So in first grade or second grade or whatever it was, we would have to read aloud in class and we'd have to go paragraph by paragraph by paragraph. And I recall, this is probably my earliest memory on my own relationship timeline. This is my earliest memory is that I was sitting in class and I had to read and I am not a proficient reader. So yes, I can read. However, I'm also ADHD. So I could read the word the at the very beginning of the sentence, but I'm looking at the very end of the sentence at the same time. And so all those things kind of ran together. So I just, I'm just not a, a proficient reader. I can read and I can read well, but I can't read well aloud. And so anyways, doing those things, and I can remember the, the snickering. And I remember the teacher saying something in my head. This is what she said, but that is probably not the, the truth of the matter is what she said. But I heard her say, do you not know how to read? And then I heard the kids laugh, right? So what I did was I learned to compensate. This is long before substance use, right? I learned a defense mechanism just through my creativity or whatever that, okay, so I know that on Tuesdays we read aloud at class and she starts a chapter or whatever. And so then I'm going to one, two, three, four, I'm the eighth person. So I'm going to be reading the eighth paragraph, right? So it's, that would appear as like, Hey, that's really good, Chris, way to go. You know, you're, you're compensating for a perceived weakness. However, long-term that is not good because when it came time to test time, I didn't get the first seven paragraphs. I wasn't focused on what they were reading. I didn't hear anything. I was only focused on this one thing. So that blew up in my face. You know, it, it seemed like that would be a, a great, great kind of, you know, great coping skill, but it wasn't. It, it it ended up hurting me, right? But I so I would do those things. And so I would learn these different behavioral patterns that, that were perceived at the time to be healthy for me. Right. And then I but I knew that they weren't. And so then I would get into this guilt and shame cycle. I would do something. And feel guilty about it. I would, I would do something and then I would feel guilty about it. 
And then I would use, and then I'd feel shame about using it. And then I would do it all over again. It was just a guilt and shame cycle, guilt and shame cycle. So for the parent, they have a perceived guilty, whatever that thing is. They, they, they may perceive that they did something wrong. One, because the kid said, hey, when you said this to me, this is what I felt, da, 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 you know, whatever those things are, right? And so then the parent starts feeling guilty. So then they compensate by, you know, sending them to the best school, buying the new shoes, buying whatever those things are. Yes. And then they feel guilty about that because they know logically that that's not the best thing to do. Right. But they feel like they're being held hostage, all the things that go on in the family system, right? And so then they, so in order to buy those good shoes, then I got to work for them. Right. And then I feel guilty about working more because now I'm not at home. If substances are involved, it gets worse for the parents. So meaning meaning that, that they start using a substance to cope with whatever's going on. And so and it just goes into this big and then the whole family system is in a guilt and shame cycle. And nobody talks about it until they end up in somebody's office. And then they get mad at that person because they're bringing it all out. Right. Right. And that's what I say whenever we're doing a family session. I always say, whatever we discuss inside this group, inside this meeting, when you get in the car and you go have dinner, do not bring this back up. If you have questions, you have concerns, journal it and then bring it back in the next so that we can process it. Yeah. Doing the process with you and not processing it out loud with one another. Very important. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, we are coming to a close. I want to ask you uh, maybe one more question. And we've talked about this, but just I want to give you the opportunity. We've talked about this throughout, but I want to give you the opportunity to, if there's like a summit statement to be able to give this, what would you say to a parent that has a child that is struggling with addiction or high risk behavior? What's your parting thought to parents? So the first thing I would say is use the word let's. Okay. Let's have a dis- let's have a discussion. I am concerned about your behaviors the past few days. Can you help me understand what's going on? So just be kind of open-ended, just kind of can you help me understand what's going on? I, I want to be here to listen. I, I'm not gonna judge. I'm not gonna, I just need to know what's going on. I want to know what's going on. Can you help me with that? So you're asking really for their permission. And you're also encouraging them and empowering them to share it with you, as opposed to you speculating, hey, I noticed that you're not with your girlfriend anymore, or whatever those things. Or you look sad, or you you are this. You you invite them to tell you what's going on. I don't I don't know why. I have no idea if there's any evidence behind the word let's, but I just like the word let's. You know, I'm open to hear what's going on. I just want to know. I'm concerned. I don't know what's going on the past couple of days, but don't say, you know, you seem different. You appear different. It's just say, hey, I'm concerned. And the beautiful part about concern doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just I'm concerned. And nobody can take that away from you. That's just a concern that you have. Right. And so it just kind of just kind of opens it up for them to to be able to discuss. The second thing I would say is to, to seek out professional counseling, even if it's a consult, to go talk to somebody. And maybe the parent goes first. Maybe the teen goes first. However you decide to do it. I don't think there's a right or wrong in how you do that. A lot of times I will get patient or parents that will come talk to me first and then they think it's a good fit. So they'll bring their child in and then I start meeting the child. I've done it with adults too, where the wife came in first for the addictive person and then the addictive person then eventually comes to me. And then the third part is for the parents to be a part. I think it's so important for the parents to be a part of the treatment process, the recovery process, specifically the treatment process. So Anytime you have an opportunity to join a support group or go for a family meeting or engage in a a clinical discussion with the therapist plus your child, all those things, get involved as soon as you can so that you're educated, so that you have information. Very true. And so um, in addition to therapy, I, I know that you listed earlier support groups for our loved ones, but there's Naranon, there's Al Anon. Smart recovery. There's uh, there's a bunch. chapter nine. Mm-hmm. Chapter yep. nine. The family afterwards. Yeah, which is really good because it you know it's from the big book, the chapter nine of the big book, and it just kind of tells Lois's version. If you read that chapter before you go to the meeting, but it just tells about you know Lois's version of what she thought this was going to look like when Bill got sober, and it was nothing like she thought. Right. And so these meetings are set up specifically for the loved one and the person addicted. And so I just think it's a good, good opportunity for people to, to be engaged. And it's, 
you know, when I was at the park, I used to always have them go out on pass. So I would do a family session almost immediately when a person was in the park, whether it's the parent or the, the parent or spouse. So I would have a, a family session almost immediately, kind of get the understanding of what's going on. But then I'd also have them go out on pass on Saturday night. So I would have the spouse, whoever the spouse is, I would have them pick up the patient. They would go to dinner and then they would go to this chapter nine meeting. And when I was really creative and I really wanted to do some wild things, then I would have them, they could not communicate what song they were going to pick. But I wanted them to pick a song that reminded them of each other. And so if it was the wife, I would say, okay, I want you to pick a song. Do not communicate this. Don't talk about the song. You do this on your own. And I want you to pick him up. When you pick him up, play the song in its entirety. Do not say one word during the song. Listen to the whole song in its entirety. Then when you get to a restaurant, you can talk about it. Then on the way home, I want him to play his song. Do not talk about it while the song is playing. Listen to all the words to the song. And then the next time we meet, we'll process all this. Right. And it's really just to get them to be connected again. I believe in, in EFT, that type of therapy, and there's dancing and movement. Songs are important, I think, in relationships. So there's a lot of power in them. Yeah, they are. And especially in the life of a team, for sure. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. This has been great. Thank you so much yeah, for joining sure, sure. us today. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We, we really appreciate it. Okay. I appreciate you having me. It's a joy. Tell us how we can find you and how we can find LifeSprings. So, I mean, you could go to LifeSprings uh, website, which is LifeSpringBehavioralHealth.com. You could go to that, www, obviously. Um, you could go to that. You can reach out. Um, uh, all of our emails are on there. I have my uh, my contacts on there, so you can reach out. My email is ccrawford at lifespringbehavioral.com. And you can reach me via email if you want to set up an appointment or if you just need a consult, a quick consult, and I can talk and see if we're a good fit. And you can kind of go from there. Great. Great. Well, I hope that our listeners will reach out if they are in need of Chris's services um, or if you have any questions, he just said, consults, do it. And so I do want to plug uh, the overdose awareness this weekend on August 28th. I'll be speaking at that. So Governor Abbott, there's a couple of Dan Dan Looney, there's a a couple other people that are going to do an Arcan uh, educational piece where you can understand or learn how to administer Narcan if you have a loved one that's potentially overdosing. So I will be there talking more about families and internal conflicts. I will, I will be there Sunday night uh, speaking and talking more about internal conflict and family systems. Yep. And one thing you said, very important that loved ones get Narcan. You can get it for free. There are many, many, many organizations that would love to give you Narcan, keep Narcan on you and get the training because overdosing and fentanyl is all over Houston. Uh, And we don't know where our loved ones are going to find it, but it is a massive crisis. Get you Narcan, keep it on you, keep some at the house, keep some in your car, keep going in your purse. If you're a guy, I don't know where you're going to put it, but um, keep it. Because uh, our loved ones recover if we if they're alive and we want to keep them alive. So yes, ma'am. All right, All right. thank you again thank you so for it. this and an great. And I know that we will see each other soon. Yes, ma'am. Thanks for listening to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy. The views and opinions expressed by our guests on today's episode are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of Archway Academy. To learn more about us and the topics we discussed, visit us at archwayacademy.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Archway Academy or on Facebook at Archway Academy HTX. Any links we mentioned and links to all of our guests on today's episode are just a tap away in the show notes. We look forward to meeting you here again on A Way Through.